In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We anticipate few things like a wedding. For those getting married, the planning and preparations can last for months. For those longing to be married one day, you daydream about what it might look like when you are finally married. But the wedding event is the beginning of something much more important, marriage. Weddings are a big deal. And the off, uh, often the, the biggest party you will ever throw or be a part of because marriage is a big deal. Weddings are full of anticipation. Jesus goes to a wedding in our gospel lesson this morning from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And he does this right at the beginning of his public ministry. This is his first big event. He and his mother get an invitation to come over to the neighboring town of Cana for the celebration. And they go to and they enjoy this wedding. Even the biggest weddings and wedding parties, wedding receptions I've been to last only several hours. Well, weddings in Jewish culture lasted a whole week with lots of feasting, celebration, dancing, merriment. The bigger, the better. The host would invite as many guests as possible, as many as he could provide good food for and good drink and accommodate. And you can imagine the sort of buzz leading up to such weddings. Everyone would be very excited, anticipating the the big event that would be happening. And often a whole entire village or town would be invited to participate in this uh, this, uh, festival of a wedding. On the first day of the wedding, the groom and his groomsmen would go in procession to the bride's home. The groom would then escort the bride back to his family's home in a procession of singing and dancing. And this most often would happen at night. They'd be carrying torches. It would be a festive, a fun occasion. The marriage feast would then happen that first evening at the groom's house. A steward would be appointed as sort of a master of ceremonies to be sure the wine kept flowing and all was in good order. All the guests would come in their best clothes and that first night of feasting and celebrating. The marriage would happen and it would kick off a week-long party. The bride and groom wouldn't go away on a honeymoon. They would, they would stay there for a whole week, partying with their friends and family and their uh, folks from, from their village. So Jesus, he is come over to Cana with his mom and with his disciples, and he has joined this party. Now, I'm not sure how you imagine Jesus, but right here at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we're to imagine him as someone who goes to a great party, someone celebrating joyfully, laughing, feasting, dancing, and enjoying wine. In our wedding liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer, the celebrant says, Our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life, that is marriage, by his presence at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. There's something very significant that Jesus begins his ministry at a wedding and that he begins his ministry on such an occasion, such a festal um, occasion where there is feasting and wine. But as the banquet extends into the evening, there's a problem. Jesus' mother approaches him with his problem. In John chapter 2, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
Now, to run out of wine, it would have been a huge embarrassment. I was once at a wedding reception, and it was quite a party, probably the biggest wedding reception I've ever been to. Uh, a lot of fun. And I was told afterwards by the groom, a good friend of mine, that the caterers uh, ran out of <laughs> adult beverages and frantically, on two occasions, unbeknownst to us, had to run out and find a store that was open so that they could buy more drink. Uh, they were not prepared. And looking back, it would have been quite a letdown for many uh, if the host had run out, of, run out of drink. Now, here in our story, Mary is up to something, I think, more than just to save someone from social embarrassment. Although that seems to be happening. But Mary, she knows the promises about Jesus. She had experienced a miracle of his conception in her womb. Now, perhaps at this moment, she thinks Jesus could reveal himself in his glory. Maybe this is the moment. After all of these years where Mary knew, she knew there was something unique and special about her son that others didn't know yet. Maybe this could be the case where not just Jesus could save a host from social embarrassment, but where Jesus could reveal his glory. She has faith in her son. She knows he can do something about this problem, but he could do something about a much greater problem. Jesus' response is interesting. In John 2, verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, calling her woman, I don't think Jesus is being rude. He is showing that his relationship with his uh, mother is more than a mother-son relationship, though. He is uh, her son, and he's a good son. He obeys his parents. Uh, but Jesus is also her Lord. Jesus is saying something like, why are you involving me with this? This is not my problem. You know, uh, talk to the host. But what Jesus says next helps us understand, I think, the dynamic of what's happening in this conversation. Because Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. It sure looks like Mary is prodding Jesus to do something powerful, to solve the immediate problem, yes, but to reveal his true glory. We read this gospel story during Epiphany, here at the beginning of this Epiphany season, because um, uh, uh, Epiphany means manifestation, it's revealing of the glory of Jesus, because that is exactly what happens at this first miracle at Cana. Jesus will indeed reveal his glory with this miracle. And Mary is prompting Jesus into action. But it seems Jesus is deferring, because he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus seems to be saying here, not quite yet. Now, we'll come back to this more in just a bit. But it's interesting. Mary goes on to instruct the servants. In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary is anticipating that Jesus will address the problem. What she commands, it sort of rings out of the text for us all. Do whatever Jesus tells you. She doesn't know how or what Jesus will do at this point, but she knows that we must obey the son, her son. Jesus, as we said, honors his mother, but his mother calls for obedience to the son. Now, what will Jesus do? He tells these servants to fill up six large jars that hold 30 gallons each um, of water. And they obey Jesus. They, they heed uh, Mary's command and Jesus' command. They do what the Son says. 
and he tells them to draw out some of some of uh, what they had filled up and take it to the master of the feast. Uh, this is the, the sort of master of ceremonies. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, that the servant who had drawn it knew. Uh, so the, the, the master of the feast, he, he, he tastes, he tastes the, this and he, he can't believe it. He calls for the bridegroom in verse 10. And he says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. It's very good wine. And there's more than enough. It's abundant. The master of the feast um, is amazed at what the bridegroom has been able to do here. Now, we know, reading this, that master of the feast doesn't know at this point, that the bridegroom um, has been rescued uh, from you know, this potential embarrassing situation by this miraculous act of which, at this point, he's ignorant. Imagine the bridegroom hearing the master of feast heaping praise on him for something he knows he is not responsible for. Now, one of the things that's happening, I think, in this narrative is that Jesus is taking the place of the bridegroom. He does what no bridegroom can do. He brings an unending supply of the best wine. He saves the best for last. In the next chapter, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus, the bridegroom, is here. And because he is here, because he has brought his unending supply of wine, our joy is now complete. The bridegroom comes at Cana and he brings joy to the party at his expense. Now, wine is a symbol of God's coming joy in the Bible, of God's coming kingdom. The Old Testament prophets tell us this. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. As to say, the best wine. The Lord will bring the best wine. We save the best for last. Uh, this is something that we do because uh, we, we know we will enjoy something more if it comes at the end. Uh, so, you know, you eat your salad, and though that's very good. Uh, salads can be very tasty. Uh, you eat it uh, before you get to the prime rib. You save the best for last. You tell a story. Uh, you end the story with a bang, with a, with a climax. You tell a joke. Uh, you hold the punchline for the very end. You remember with delight the last best thing. And Jesus comes onto the scene as God's last but his best gift. He is the one we've been anticipating all along. The six stone water jars of purification represent the old covenant which was preparing for the perfect seven, the flesh of the Messiah who will purify us. We're no longer dealing in stone water jars. We're dealing in the perfect seven flesh of the incarnate Lord who comes with his purifying water and transforms it into glorious, joyful wine, the wine of the new covenant. God saves his best for the end. At the wedding at Cana, the end 
The joy of the end breaks into the present. Cana is a picture of the good news of God's coming best wine, of God's coming wedding. And it's happening, it's happening right now in the present. It's breaking into the present. Cana is a feast with Jesus the groom who provides an unending supply of joy with his wine. Cana is a Sabbath celebration of God's work also. In verse 1, we read, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. We might ask, third day from what? Well, from the fourth day. If we count back the days, John has marked for us in John chapter 1. He gives us these day markers. And if we are paying attention to those day markers, when we come to chapter 2, we see that Jesus comes into Cana on the seventh day. This is Sabbath. Sabbath comes at the end. We anticipate Sabbath rest during a wearing week. We long to put our feet up, maybe even enjoy a glass of wine. Jesus is the eternal word through whom all things were made. John's already told us this in chapter one. He is making now a new creation. At this wedding in Cana, he is showing us his work. He comes for a bride and he comes to bring abundant joy for his bride. He is the true bridegroom. We anticipate weddings. We, 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 we long uh, uh, for, for all that weddings represent. Weddings and marriages themselves, they're, they're, they're full of anticipation, full of waiting. In John's gospel, Jesus is anticipating his, what he calls, hour. And what is this hour? John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is his hour on the cross. Now, if you are not married and attend a wedding, you enjoy the wedding and the party and you are happy for your friends who are getting married, but it's likely at some point you think about what it might, like, what it might be like for you yourself um, if or when you are married. What would, what would your wedding look like? What would it be like? You know, we do the same thing at, at funerals. We, we mourn and we, we grieve for our lost loved one or friend. Um, but uh, naturally, we, we think at some point, this will be me one day. Um, I'll, I'll, I will have the funeral one day. What will it be like? You, you anticipate the coming hour. Jesus' hour on the cross, though, it would not be one first of joyful celebration like at a wedding. It would be an hour of pain and agony. John twelve twenty seven. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus knows, even at Cana, that he is heading to the cross where he will pour out the, the wine of his blood. It'll be an unending supply, but it'll come in a great cost. It'll come at the cost of agony. But on the other side of this, he will create a joyful situation. He will, he will be the groom who through his sacrifice acquires a bride. Now imagine Jesus uh, enjoying this party, having a good time, but then thinking about his coming hour. He's thinking of his marriage. His delight will be over his bride, yes, but he will first die for his bride. On the cross, Jesus pours out the unending best wine of his blood for his bride. Now, Today's a little different because we're not meeting in person and we don't have Holy Communion. Uh, this, uh, of all days, um, not to be able to have Holy Communion together um, 
It's a, it's a loss for us. But we come to Holy Communion every week at the end of our service. The best comes last. And we receive a foretaste of the great wedding banquet that the groom is preparing for us even now. We anticipate. We anticipate the unending Sabbath, seventh-day feast with unending choice wine. Jesus' first miracle here. It strikes a note of sheer joy. He's at a wedding. He's at a party. He's at a feast. And he supplies unending wine, the symbol of joy, the symbol of gladness in the Bible. Because this is what he comes to do. He comes to bring unending life and abundant joy to his people. Life is full of lots of struggles. We all know this. Suffering, death, uncertainty, pain. We don't ignore those things as Christians. In fact, Jesus gives us lots of resources to embrace all of the difficult parts of our lives, to embrace suffering, because he is the one who has suffered for us. But as Christians, the dominant note we are to strike is one of joy. We are to be a joyful people. We are to be a people who enjoy the unending wine that Jesus gives us. Jesus' first miracle, it sets a tone. It sets a tone for the nature of his kingdom. It sets a tone for the gospel. And it should set a tone for our lives as his followers to be a people who are joyful because we have received the wine that Jesus gives. And we still await this abundant choice, unending wine that comes at the end. As a community, as a church, our, our fellowship it should be marked by joy. We should know how to feast. We should know how to throw a good party, and um, uh, so many of you in this community certainly do. And we do this all in response, uh, in response to and anticipation of the joy that is ours now and will be fully in Jesus, the bridegroom.